0: Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Have you guys been enjoying the Acts series? Yeah, so we're going to continue that today, and I just want to read a few verses from Acts chapter number 13, verses 1 through 4, and after that I'll pray and then we'll, we'll jump into the message. But it says this, among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon called the black man let's go black man uh, Lucius from Cyrene Manan the childhood companion of, uh, companion of King Herod Antipas and Saul one day all these men were worshipping the Lord and fasting as they were doing that the Holy Spirit said appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them so after more fasting and prayer the, men's, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way so Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. God, I, just, I know it's not an accident that we ended up here today. God, you want to speak to us and, and give us something specific from your word. So, Lord, over these next few minutes, we just don't need another, another talk, another sermon, another motivational speech. God, we need to hear from you. So, God, we open up our hearts. Our expectation is high that you're going to speak something to us today that is going to change our life forever. So, Lord, uh, would you do that? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: All right, tis the season of announcements, and that's because there's so many things going on. It always happens around this time every year. I want to just add a, a couple of underscores. One, this is the last drop-dead final weekend today and then tomorrow for registering for our USM United Students uh, fall retreat. This is the biggest thing we do all year. United Students is at an all-time high of momentum and work God's doing. Students, this will be our biggest retreat yet and there's a couple more spots. We wanna make it possible for every student in our church or in our sphere of influence to go. So two things. First, if you have a a student, you're new to the church, you're visiting, you have a grandchild or a neighbor or somebody you think that um, you'd like to see go, we'd love to have them. As Pastor Logan has said, a a youth retreat over a weekend is worth like six months of coming to weekly youth group meetings. Um, Just so powerful for connecting with other students and with God. They come away in close relationships. Can't recommend that highly enough. Secondly, We have, between our partner community of South High School, where as God's opened doors for Pastor Logan to be a part of the ministry of Young Life there, and we're hosting their ministry here at the church during the week, um, we have the opportunity to bring several students from South High School and some in our own church family, deserving kids that love God and come from underprivileged, at least economically underprivileged homes, or maybe just um, homes that have plenty of privilege, but for whom uh, the, the... Cost of two hundred dollars a student is just a bridge too far right now, and we want to make it possible for every student to go um, in our in our church family. Bottom line: so what we've done every year for years, uh, what you all have done, and so I'm just sort of announcing what has come out of your impetus over the years, is to scholarship or partially scholarship some students. Maybe your kids are grown, or you you aren't going to have kids, or whatever, uh, or maybe you do have kids and they're going, and you just have extra discretionary income. If you would like to make it possible or help make it possible for a student. Um, to go. We want every kid um, to be able to do that, and we'd love for you to do that. It's simple. Just go in the normal giving online giving portal, and then you can select um, Fall Retreat. And uh, anyone uh, who you'd like to know about or you'd like to register for the retreat, just go to our website, denverunited.com. It'll pop up right there. Can't miss it, and we'd love to have your kids. All right, lastly, I want to let you know that um, starting next week, as you might have already gotten the word, Mari and I are going to host for the first time ever a Um, a a four-week class on parenting. It's called Parenting on Purpose. Mari's been working hard preparing for this. It's some ideas that really um, she has learned from. We've gathered from um, some parenting experts in the family of God and uh, have seen great fruit in in the trial and error journey of raising our own children. Envision a conversation, uh, and it's parents of little ones or prospective parents all the way to, to teenagers. Um, like our kids. So I hope you'll join us for that. That is next Sunday evening and for the four weeks in October. All right, shall we jump into the Word? Father, in the name of Jesus, thanks for your Word. Thanks for the life, power, truth, hope, and transformation that we find in it. We invite you to take it from words on a page to your life in our heart. We give it our focus now, and this is our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. I've told you the story once before, but it bears repeating in this context that it was a an arduous journey teaching my firstborn how to ride a bike, um, and I say arduous. It was it was not primarily. Um, her challenge—it was probably mine. Uh, I was parenting challenged, and any of you parents who have raised multiple children, you know the sad truth is that you're a slightly worse parent with each older child you get. Or to put it more optimistically, you become a better parent with as they go down because you learn, you experiment on the older ones, right? <laughs> and you learn what does and does not work. Well, when you couple that with the I- intrinsic caution and and reason. Um, of a firstborn you had a perfect storm of riding learning to ride a bike challenge and so I, I, um, I thought that I could explain her into riding a bike but what I discovered is my smart, smarty pants child who's now a smarty pants young adult who's home from college so glad you're here l uh, for the weekend she um, her understanding her intuitive understanding of physics sort of bested my ability to explain it she'd be like, dad." Um, the, What she was giving me a working explanation of was gravity and that it happens and that standing up on two wheels is not likely or possible. And I tried getting into, like, centrifugal force and things like that, but I'm like, oh, never mind. Just, honey, it's gonna, I know it doesn't seem like it, but if I could just, ex- some more words and more frustration, and, and, th- and then it was, like, running along behind her at that bent-over position, you know, dads, that kills your back, like, for a long, long time. And she's like, don't let go, don't let go. And I'm like, I gotta let go or you'll never, dad, don't let go. And it turned into this, now we laugh about, it, then we probably didn't, power struggle, um, and what I realized is that I was trying to teach her something that can't be exactly taught. Not that way, right? I was trying to um, develop in a classroom setting, a concept that could only be really experienced. I, I think I was trying to explain the inexplicable. And maybe that was the problem. That's our subject for this morning not riding a bike, but the inexplicable. The passage Pastor George just read for us, Pastor George just read for us, is the the beginning of Acts chapter 13 and a hinge in this narrative account of the book of Acts through which we're studying this month, where we're about to see the missionary journey of Paul, uh, the first one, begin. And thus began the church of which we are a part. So we're here in large part thanks to God's work through Paul and his obedience to going out and spreading the gospel. And these four verses seem like they're just a setup. They're kind of a a context bubble, but they elucidate something that is hugely important. In verse 2, the Bible teaches, one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I've called them. And it just sort of slips that in, that the Holy Spirit said it. And what that brings to mind for me is how often I, over the years, have heard Christians who seem more mature than me say that, you know, God said to me, dot, 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 and and don't, they leave it as a sort of euphemism, such that you are either to believe that God spoke to them in an audible voice, which some people have seem to have experienced, and I'm not going to be the one to say they haven't. Uh, I haven't, but it doesn't seem in any case to be the primary means of of God's delivering the message, Uh, or you're supposed to know what that's code for. And maybe in a church where everybody sort of speaks the same dialect or uses the same idioms, they know what that means, but the problem is people move or change churches or get mad and are hurt by the church or whatever, and then they go from this church where that means thus, and then they come to this church where it means such, and we're left with this weird, uh, unspoken spiritual tension that I think goes to the heart of what it means to follow Jesus and how we do it. Have you ever had someone say, you know, the Holy Spirit said to me and then went on with what they were sensing to be God's leading, and you wanted to go back, but it seems impertinent to do, and ask, when you said that, that the Holy Spirit said to you, what, what exactly do you mean? Like, what, what went down? How did that transpire? But you feel like you're the, the, the spiritual, you know, um, tenderfoot if you ask. So you don't. Well, I want to ask because Scripture says it. And it might mean that the Holy Spirit literally said it to them all, right? But the thing is, Jesus was just there. When they said Jesus said to him, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I'm pretty sure his mouth opened, he formed words, and those were what they communicated. That, those ideas, right? But Jesus left and left the Holy Spirit in all of our hearts so that we would all have the kind of access to God, which, you know, 12 men, one of whom fouled out, kind of got for a short time. And so maybe what he meant for us to understand was that the Holy Spirit came back down like a dove another time and he's like, go to Cyprus, Paul, and then flew away. But <laughs> probably not. So what does it mean when it says, the Holy Spirit said that to them. That's what I want to dig in on for just a moment. Here's what we know. He spoke in some capacity. They heard clearly. They responded, and they went on to change the world. Well, so are we to do, and I think it's worth pausing and asking, how do we hear? What is that supposed to be like? Because I think otherwise we end up with a, an accidental or maybe intentional spiritual hierarchy where there's the few sort of spiritual black belts who hear from God, or so they say, and then the rest of us who think we're probably doing it wrong. Or we think, I must not be a good enough Christian. I'm not religious enough. Or I don't do this or that enough. And, or I would hear from God too. Where I think that maybe we need to reimagine what that is all about. Last week, Pastor George did a great job taking the jailbreak passage and then juxtaposing it with the later jailbreak passage and drawing from that that following the Holy Spirit is not a formula. So um, what I want to do this morning is ask, or at least what I'm tempted to do is say, okay, so to unformulate the Holy Spirit, how does that work? And I find myself stuck in this sort of engineer brain that I have wanting to make a formula out of undoing the formula. I wanna tell you, I wanna to explain to you how to, how to really hear from God. I've spent 20 years confounded in this job trying to explain to the people of God how to hear God's voice. It's sort of like trying to explain to my seven-year-old daughter how to ride a bike when it's inexplicable. What I wanna say and what I should have said is, look, just, you need to just trust me. Just start pedaling. I'm not going to be able to explain it to you adequately. There's not an intellectual plane you're going to ascend to. There's not a switch that's going to flip, and all of a sudden, you're going to know how to ride a bike. Yet, I have never met an adult who got into adulthood and was like, I just can't ride a bike. I tried, but I couldn't figure it out. Everybody who tries, rides. It's gonna happen for you too. You're going to figure it out. You just have to do. But part of it was that I tried to keep on explaining. And so for 20 years in pastoral ministry, I've tried to keep on explaining. If I could just break it down for you a little more, if I can just make this passage look like it means this exact prescription, then you'll go and apply my teachings and hear from God. But the challenge is I'm trying to explain something that is intrinsically inexplicable. It's got to be lived. Galatians chapter 5 says, since we are living by the Spirit, Paul writing to one of the churches he planted years before, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So we're supposed to take real time direction in every part of our lives. I'm pretty sure it means in every part of our lives. We're supposed to hear from him and be guided. How do we do that without asking, how do we do that? sort of a conundrum if you think about it, and this is the big question. How do we determine the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives? kind of where the rubber meets the road in Christianity as you live it out. Acts 15 is a, a couple of chapters ahead, but it gives us an object lesson, like a zoom-in case study in this being done. The story, in short, is that the believers were growing among the Gentiles, and so as the church grew, they, they ran into a, a big theological problem that had a practical expression, right? The, the, the theology they were dealing with was, how, do we, how does the old covenant interplay with the new. But the way that that came to the surface wasn't that the Gentile believers in these cosmopolitan port cities that were receiving Christ were sitting around wrestling over theology. It was that some religiously zealous Christian Jews um, were teaching them how how to walk with Jesus. And they said, well, of course, you'd wanna fulfill the covenant. And they're like, what's the covenant? And they start explaining it to them. And then they're like, and so you need to cut. And they're like, excuse me? I know it's sort of awkward to talk about, but this happened. And they're like, no, you need to slice. And they're like, whoa. So I'm good, man. Actually, I know I said I wanted to be all in on Jesus, but what I meant is I'm kind of good with Zeus. Like, I mean, I'll take a day and honor Jesus, but I don't know about that. And so Paul's like, hey, guys, we got a problem here. And what they discovered they were wrestling with is, how does the old covenant work vis-a-vis the new? And they ended up wrestling it through. But it got to be such a flashpoint issue that they sent it back to the mothership in Jerusalem and what was called a, the, the Jerusalem Council. They had a big meeting to decide what to do about this. And um, thank God they did, and thank God they decided as they did, or many of us probably wouldn't be here, right? Because this the gospel would have spread quite differently. And... The way that that went down is they had a meeting, they prayed, they presumably sought God, discussed it together, and then they came to a decision. They wrote a letter back to the Gentile churches rendering their verdict, and here's how it concluded. In verse 28, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And it spelled it out, and it was like they're listening with bated breath, the Gentiles as it's being read, and they're like, okay, I'm good with not drinking blood, but, oh, whew. Okay, we're back in, guys. We're good. <laughs> that verb seemed good. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It's actually used four times in this one story in Acts chapter 15. They said, it seemed good to us. It seemed to us that this is how we should proceed. That verb comes from the Greek word dakeo which literally means as a verb to think, imagine, consider, or appear. But it's used dozens of times in the New Testament um, idiomatically. So it's used in a turn of phrase such as, is the case here in Acts 15? And typically, that, um, the compound expression means or communicates that this phrase expresses the subjective mental estimate or opinion formed by man considering, considering or concerning a matter. The subjective opinion or conclusion formed by people over a matter. Subjective means not objective, not black and white, heaven or hell, right or wrong, but just what, what to them seemed best. They said four times in Acts 15, it seemed, it docaed us. It seemed to us that this, in our subjective conclusion, was the best way. And then they summarized by saying it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We, we concluded, we, we're pretty sure that the Holy Spirit thought this had this mind of this matter. This verb reappears in 1 Corinthians 7 when the Apostle Paul is advising one of his church plans, on a matter of divorce and remarriage and and singleness. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, in my opinion, it would be better for her to stay single. And I think I'm giving you counsel from God's Spirit when I say this. Any guesses as to the root word that is here translated idiomatically, in my opinion? It's the same word, dacheo. It seems to me, and I'm pretty sure that's the Holy Spirit's leading, right? That's the way the doctrine of the New Testament church was formed. And what God does is gives us a backstage pass, a glimpse behind the curtain of how hearing from the Holy Spirit regularly seems to work. The bottom line up front is this, following the Holy Spirit is imprecise. On purpose. It's imprecise on purpose because God set it up that way. Would a loving father who created all that we know, created humans in his image, invited us to a personal relationship with him, came to earth, died on a cross so we could be restored to that relationship and left himself in the form of the Holy Spirit as a direct line to heaven, would that God go all that way and then stop just short of making the way we interact with him exactly precise? by accident? Would he be like, I just ran out of time, or I lost interest, or like the Andromeda galaxy needed me, so I'll leave you guys to figure out the last bit yourself. Is that God? Is that a good father? The only way it makes sense for God to have set it up that way is that he did so on purpose. So the question is why? Why would he make hearing from the Holy Spirit imprecise? Well, first, It is an organic process because the Holy Spirit is not a guidance dispenser. He's not a machine. He's not a GPS or any other S. He's not a system. He's not software. He's a person. He is the third person of the eternally coexistent triune Godhead. He is God. He is good. He is in you and he desires relationship. He's not interested in spitting out a conclusion for you to consume. He's there to be known, to be sought. And so over the years of trying to explain how this thing works, I've concluded that I'm not supposed to be able to explain to you exactly how it works because it is not an it to be worked. He is a person to be known. One of my favorite early 20th century, late 19th century revivalists, Ian Bounds wrote, the church is looking for better methods. God's looking for better men. We always want to find a a snappier, quicker, more efficient way to get the God goods. God's not interested in efficiently dispensing his goods. He's interested in our knowing him, our pursuing him and walking with him. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We looked at this two weeks ago. Now it goes on, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. In other words, we don't see it as clearly as we will. We see through a mirror dimly, it says elsewhere. He says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We were made to walk by faith. This is how God set it up. And I think sometimes we think of faith as the elementary stuff and sight is the fruit of maturity. When I grow up enough, I'll see clearly. I won't have to have faith. Like the reward of faith is sight. But you know how it really works? The reward of faith is you get asked to have more faith, bigger faith, and you get more faith to live it out. This understanding that following the Holy Spirit is intentionally imprecise is helpful in one regard, in that it reduces the hocus-pocus around this subject that sometimes sometimes sets in in the church world. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you been around in an environment where it's a little woohoo? And if you don't hear from God, then you obviously aren't there yet. And so we're made to sort of experience an us and them dynamic, um, which is sick. It's not God. Every one of us, Jesus said, I counsel you to hear this, you who look down on the others, you think that you've got it together, but really you are naked and poor, wretched and blind, and so come, I counsel you buy gold, refined in the fire, salve for your eyes so that you may see. We're not better than others, and when we create a dynamic that, that insinuates, I'm being besieged by a fly, this has never happened to me. I like tried to ignore it for four lands on my forehead, and so now I'm just gonna, get away from me. Go on him. Tiny fly brain just is like, I have to land on his forehead right now. 20 years of preaching, I've never had that happen until right now. Where was I? Sorry, there was just no getting around it. I just had to swat. I really don't know where I was. Hocus pocus. Um, So point being, all that is rooted in fear and pride, neither of which is rooted in Jesus. So let's just let that go. Okay? And what it, the upshot of it is it leaves too many of us thinking, well, I guess I'm not good enough and so I'll leave the ministry to the pros. The people who are viewed as pros are happy to have the ministry left to them because it substantiates our existence or our job or our ministry or our whatever, our jet that we fly around on. But the problem is it undoes the New Testament where Jesus Christ died on a cross so that all of us could be restored to God. The Holy Spirit fills all of us so that every one of us can hear God's voice and do his work, right? And so... It reduces and cuts through some of that haze, but it leaves us on the downside asking, so then how do I know for sure? Right, because there's a prudence that cautions us to what seems good. It says in Proverbs 14, you'll discover as you grow, and probably have, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way to death. That sounds an awful lot like doceo, right? There's a way that seems right, except it's not right, it's wrong. So what am I supposed to do? Gamble the whole thing on that, on a seam? on a hunch, on a, on a maybe? How do we know for sure? That's the problem, that's the bugaboo. That's why we allow ourselves to be led down a path that accidentally undoes the New Testament and creates oracles of God whom us common peons have to go and, and ask God's will for ourselves from, right? So what are we to do about that? Leaves us in a bit of a bind. Verse two, one more time. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said what he said. They weren't just living along their lives. They were going after God. And I think what you can reliably take from that is that we hear, so to speak, the Holy Spirit's guidance, through a process of spiritual discernment. There's no cheat code. I don't know that there's a shortcut to it. 1 Corinthians 2 says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The person who's thinking about hearing something in the natural or expecting it to just come as a matter of course because I asked once. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because, listen, they are spiritually discerned. So here's what this says. The things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned. Now, on the one hand, that's self-evident as to be insulting. It's so obvious. But on the other hand, so many of us live along so much of Christian life never apprehending that truth. The things of the Spirit, the Spirit's leading, they're spiritually discerned. The believers were praying and fasting ongoingly, and then they heard the Holy Spirit. And when people ask me, hey, I'm, I'm not hearing from God, I ask you, have you prayed and fasted? well, I I prayed about it, you know, I'm not trying to make this a a religious exercise or quantify it, but how much? Like, and then how much TV did you watch this week? And how how much time did you spend looking at Instagram? And there's nothing wrong with those things. I'm just saying that they invested in their spiritual lives and then they discerned from the Holy Spirit. And we kind of want it to be instant where we can remain maybe baby Christians and then hear from the Spirit. But the things of the Spirit, they're discerned in the context of maturing spiritually. Look at this in Romans 12. Do not conform any longer to that pattern, to the old self, to the carnal nature, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love the next word. This is the most pivotal word in this verse to me. Then, as you do that, not once you have leveled up, but then, as we are being transformed, our whole Self, heart, mind, body, and spirit into Jesus' image, starting with the renewing of the way we think. As we're being transformed, then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is His good, perfect, and pleasing will. Listen, we stand on the promises of God and we think they're yes and amen. We read that somewhere and we know that to be true. Let me read you a promise from God. As you're being transformed, you will know what God's will is. You will be able to discern it. Ellie, you will be able to ride a bike, honey. You just have to pedal. Like, as you seek him, you will be able to discern his will. How exactly that's going to feel for you, I can't and shouldn't try to say. I'm hesitant to say how it works for me because I don't think any of us does well trying to recreate someone else's experience with God. Um, But you will be able to know what God's will is. Verse two, one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and these men weren't just Paul and Barnabas, the ones who got the the direction from heaven to go and take Cyprus for Jesus. These men were a, a group whom we learn a little more about. I think what we find here is that this spiritual discernment, this discerning process, we do it primarily, we do it best in the company of the family of God, in the context of fellow believers with whom we've been cultivating spiritual life. The backdrop of this shared work of discernment that we get a glimpse of here at such a prescient moment in Acts 13 is Months and years of intentionally, sacrificially doing life together. You see the seedbeds of it in Acts chapter 2. Remember, after the day of Pentecost, the church explodes, all these believers from all over the world together in this wild, diverse family. And it says they worshiped together at the temple each day, they met in homes for the Lord's Supper, they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, they did life together. And in Acts 4, a couple chapters later, they had a prayer meeting, and after the prayer, the place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You're like, but they were already filled with the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost. Right, and they sought God, and they got filled up some more. That's why Jesus said, God gives the Spirit without limit. That's why he said, keep on asking. Remember two weeks ago? And you will receive, and you'll keep on receiving. Does it make any sense for Jesus to say, keep on asking for something that you get once? Why would he say that? But see, they prayed, they bonded together, they sought God, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they preached the word of God with boldness. And all the believers were united in heart and mind. This is the context in which this discerning of what the Holy Spirit said in verse 13 happened. There's no shortcut, there's no cheat code. It is an intrinsically subjective process, a doceo sort of process. And so because of that, the value is huge of having mature believers around us. Sometimes that's those whom God has placed in delegated authority in our lives, not that they are the ones to decide or primarily to hear, but to help us discern, understand what impulses are from God and what may not be, or the counsel of wise, mature believers, those whom we've surrounded ourselves with, whom we trust, because they walk with the Lord and evidence fruit of his Spirit, right? And they're not going to tell you in mature Christian life, thus saith the Lord, you should do this, or you shouldn't do that. The Holy Spirit presumably gave Paul Barnabas, maybe one of the prophets, an idea. They, though, resonated with it and then brought it to the council. And the council helped them figure out, is this God? Is this me? Is this zeal? Is this a weird dream? What is this? Right? Like, that often works out in our lives by helping one another remember that God won't speak to us through his spirit to do something opposite of what he has already spoken to us through his word, right? Aren't you glad to have wise, mature believers around to say, hey, it may feel like, I I hear that you're saying God's speaking to you to leave your spouse and, and have an affair. But let me tell you something, that's not God speaking to you because the word of God has already rendered judgment on that. No, I'm not saying that he or she didn't do something wrong and that you're not feeling that. I'm simply saying that is not, nor will that ever be God. And see, the counsel of the family of God helps us find wisdom in our zeal, helps us remember the boundaries that are placed by the word of God and confirm and affirm what God is speaking in our hearts. It's like what my dad always used to say, measure twice and cut once. Among the prophets, verse 1, and the teachers of the church in Antioch were Barnabas, who we know from the preceding chapter was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit. He's the encourager. He's the steady guy, the glue guy on the team. And then you've got Simeon called the black man, presumably because he was a black man. <laughs> I don't know what else they'd call him that. L- Lucius. I just lost it. Where is it? Lucius, who's from Cyrene, which is in northern Africa, like Libya and Morocco. Very, very different culture than um, middle and sub-Saharan Africa, where people were um, and are black, right? The northern Africans, different complexion, completely different culture. I mean, just think about like Casablanca and Morocco. Um, so you've got You've got somebody from Cyrene. Then you've got Menaean, who is the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, who is the son of King Herod of wanting to kill Jesus and all the two-year-old Jewish boys, in like mini-genocide fame. Crazy. This guy grew up in his household. So not only is he used to wealth and privilege, but he's also used to, I don't know, psychosis? So we had to sort that out. And then you've got Paul, who was Saul, who was like this Jewish scholar, who was so right he was wrong in persecuting Christians. And they're all together following Jesus. And in this diverse company, I think the discernment of the Holy Spirit's leading was especially prevalent. And the diverse company is helpful in particular, not essential, but I think helpful to avoid groupthink. Wouldn't you imagine that it's much more likely that people who come from the same neck of the woods and the same background as us are gonna kind of sense and feel the same stuff? But somebody who comes from, from Cyrene is gonna have a different perspective, a different background. He would have learned different stuff in school, different family culture and values, and is gonna advise somebody from Israel or somebody from Central Africa in a different way. And so in the diverse complexion of the body of Christ, there is great spiritual richness. There is tremendous hope of affirming, discerning together what is God's will. We have to be careful just as as a word of caution in understanding that discernment happens best In the context in the company of the family of believers that it is not the family of believers job to hear god's will for you nobody is going to hear god's will for you like you that again is the a large part of the point of the new testament every one of us has the spirit of god living in us and so what the body of believers does is confirm affirm there are rare exceptions where uh, a delegated authority says thus saith the lord thou shalt not kill. And now you've got to go to prison or something like that. But for the most part, we're going to hear God's will for ourselves and then the family of believers are going to help us discern what is in fact God and what was maybe, you know, two-day-old pizza. So we've got to wrap it up here. After more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. That's verse three. So let me get this straight they had been fasting and praying, and they heard the Holy Spirit, such as it was, say, go to Cyprus, and then they fasted and prayed a bunch more, and then they went. Well, they already got their answer. They already had their direction. But see, I think what this points out is that God is, um, He's not so much looking to reveal the direction He's looking to reveal himself. See, the, the secret here is that they weren't looking for guidance in these meetings, they were looking for God. And so after more fasting and prayer, in the, again in the context of seeking God with all their hearts, they became sure, sure enough to bet their lives on. And so they laid hands on him and sent him off and they went and changed the world. What's the point? I think it's this. We find direction from God when we find God. Jeremiah 29 11, famous verse, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Anyone know this verse? Anyone have this verse in a framed picture above their bed as a kid? My mom had it above me. It was a little handsome mahogany frame with like a A duck on a lake with reeds and it said i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope in a future and i remember at first in my elementary life taking comfort in that i'm like oh this is so good god's got plans for me but then in my middle school life when i started to get a little sassy and talk back to people i was like all right so i'm i'm super glad that you know the plans i don't know the plans care to share or are you like sort of saying nanny nanny boo boo i know them and you don't like Are you gonna ever let me in on them? Or is it supposed to be comforting alone to know that you know them? But here's the great thing about the Bible. It never ends the verse. Now the plaque ended at that verse, but you know what it says after verse 11? Verse 12, it says, you will pray to me and I will answer you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Now, as best I read it, he said the same thing three times in a row. Seek me and you'll find me. Seek me and you'll find me. Seek me and you'll find me. Except he flipped it around and used the passive voice. So is God being redundant? I think he's being clear. I think he wants you to know this one thing on this subject if you hear nothing else. You will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Now, no promise is what happens when you seek me with half your heart. People do that every day. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But you will find me. And then he goes on to declare it. It's not like, it doesn't say, I'll be found by you, attests the Lord, asserts the Lord, states the Lord. He declares it. He gets a little crazy. He wants to make sure that you don't miss this. It's like he does something impertinent, like stands up on a chair and he declares it. And you're like, you're God, you're being a little untoward. This is a little socially awkward, but he's like, I don't care. Listen, I will be found by you. He declared it. What am I saying? What's the point? You cannot seek God with all your heart and miss him. It's not possible. If you could seek God with all your heart and miss him down some unmarked intersection, Christ died for nothing. And we're, dude, this is a sham. Should go do something good and then hit the trails. It all relies on this truth. You will seek me, and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So I can't tell you, and I don't think I'm supposed to tell you and you can't tell one another, and the person whose book you're thinking of buying or whose conference you attended, no matter how much they tell you they can tell you, they cannot tell you how exactly you will hear God. You were made to not know how exactly you will hear him, but to seek him. And as you seek him, you're gonna find him. And when you find him, listen, you're gonna get the guidance. You're gonna get the provision, the peace, the healing, everything you're seeking, you get the whole enchilada. That's really what this boils down to. So what have we said this morning? Let go of the formula once and for all. Let go of the need, the desire, the rubric that says good religion is to find a formula to get to the end and entrench yourself in the family of God. We're gonna keep inviting you, hopefully lovingly, to do that. We're gonna keep doing the things we know to do. Having services and having them a more time so more of us can be more involved with one another in God. Hosting more united groups in more parts of the city so that we can entrench ourselves in the family of God. And in that context, seek his face and you'll get his stuff. You seek his hand, you may or may not get what's in it. But if you seek his face, you'll get the stuff he's got for you, amen? Do you believe that? It's the best news I know. Would you stand with me? Father in heaven, thanks for your faithfulness. Thanks for your favor, your kindness, your goodness. Thanks for the truth of your promises. Lord God, thank you for loving us enough to keep this thing inexact, Imprecise, so that we're drawn to you. What we think we want is the stuff you have for us, what our hearts are made to want, what we want deep down, what we authentically hunger for and thirst for is you. Our hearts were made for you, and they will be restless until they find rest in you. So would you draw us close? Would you teach us to seek you? Would you reveal yourself as we do and draw us closer in? And as we do, we trust you to teach us how to hear your voice, how to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that you wouldn't ask us, instruct us to do something that was a a crapshoot, that we had no real hope of doing on a consistent basis. And so we trust you. We look to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you all.
0: We hope you've been encouraged and inspired. For more information or to submit a prayer request, please go to denverunited.com.